Well, it's Friday, and everybody knows it's Friday. It's time to go inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Sabalero, and the man next to the man. He is here with me, too, always with me. My good friend, Kelly Grayson KG. What's going on down there in world-famous Pitkin, Louisiana? Where the men are men and the sheep are nervous. Yeah, it's... uh it's going well, man. I, I uh, got off shift this morning and went and did a, a training class for our ET3 program uh, so we can get a little better compliance on our, our treatment in place and alternate destination transport, and, and uh, I feel a lot more confident with it. And then uh, I did a uh, webinar for EMS-1, Navigating the Difficult Airway. So if you guys uh, um, didn't get to one, weren't one of the few hundred to, to catch that live. It should be up on EMS one in the next couple of days. Yeah, I will. Uh, I did want to check that out, but I was too busy today to uh, jump on it live, but, uh, you're a busy, always, busy man. I am. I am. But it's always awesome that when you have that opportunity to teach that airway. So I'm looking forward to it. One of the things yeah. that we need to do probably maybe in the next show, let's go ahead and cover the highlights of that webinar for the people who missed it. Yeah. Um, but I think that would be a really good one. But, you know, Kelly, I, I think today, you know, we really have something. Uh, I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. And, uh, you know, Valentine's Day is something that's very, very special to everyone. I mean, probably not you, but everyone. But uh, Texas had a little bit of challenge over this uh, loving holiday. And it was the 2021 Texas winter storm. And one of the biggest challenges, 69 deaths, 44 hours of freezing, 18 billion in damage. Um, you know, it was just a horrible event that for four days, uh, people weren't able to go shopping. They had no food. Uh, they had, didn't have clean water. Um, they had to stand in line just to get water. Um, you know, and it was, you know, people's pipes were bursting. And But how did EMS handle this? And I think that that's really going to be an interesting discussion. Well, here to help us is my good friend, mentor, the chief of Austin Travis County EMS, Ernie Rodriguez. Ernie, I want to thank you for time, uh, taking time out of your busy day to visit with us. Oh, you bet, Chris. Uh, happy, to, happy to be here. Welcome we, to the show, Ernie. Thank you. <laughs> and we were kind of worried about everything that was going on down there in Texas. You know, I still got family down there, and it was really kind of crazy, Ernie. And having you on to really kind of give us perspective and maybe just give us just an overall kind of review of what it was like to uh, be an EMS on these crazy days? Well, Chris, it, it was terrible. Um, and I think what, what we've come to over, over the years in EMS is, is we're the ones that save the day. Uh, we're the ones that always uh, have the answers to everything. We're the ones that are always prepared. And we're the systems that never fail. Uh, well, this, uh, this winter storm came in and uh, we lost infrastructure and couldn't get people to work and obviously couldn't mobilize our equipment so easy. And uh, all of a sudden we, we didn't have the resources. We didn't have the answers. Uh, we were doing our best. Um, I, I can't say that EMS saved the day. We played an important part, but much of the community actually had to come together um, to make this day work. And uh, it, it was probably one of the worst experiences that, that we have had uh, where we actually went through periods of feeling helpless and uh, were challenged in every way you can think of. You know, Ernie, I, I, I can only imagine what you guys uh, went through. We, we were without power and water for four days here in Louisiana. We, we caught the, or, or my town caught the fringe of it. We had sub-freezing temperatures, but nothing to the degree of, of damage and, and shortages and outages that, that Texas had. And, uh, 
you know, it, it's a, this is on, on hurricane level, you know, uh, uh, disaster. You know, we, we thought we faced challenges with, with Hurricane Laura, and, and we did, but you don't expect that sort of thing to hit with a little minor ice storm. But when it hits in a place that, that uh, typically doesn't get that kind of weather, so isn't, uh, doesn't, maybe doesn't have the, the management uh, and the machines and the infrastructure to, to handle it, it can, it can really throw a wrench into plans. Yeah, we, we were just not designed for that kind of weather. No. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in sunny Austin today, blue skies. Uh, fresh air, 71 degrees. It's very nice. That's what we do. Um, but you take that and make it sub-zero, and now we have problems. Uh, we just were not expecting that degree of cold, and certainly not for that long. You know, and people that people that are used to this sort of thing, you know, uh, they have a hard time processing how difficult it is for us. That you know, you get four inches of snow and, and a little bit of ice and, and a hard freeze for a couple of days in, in a northern state. And I mean, heck, that's that's shirt sleeve weather for a lot of them. But <laughs> but but they have they have the plan in place. You know, they have sand, they have they have salt and sand trucks and they have snow plows and everything. And, and Texas, Louisiana, we don't have that sort of thing. Uh, and not to mention the, the fact that, you know, your your electrical grid was not you know, hardened against, uh, against freeze, like it would be in a Northern state. Yeah. That's a, that's a gamble where the Texas with the, the Texas electrical get, grid lost that gamble. But, um, the fact that, that you were without water and without power for so long and, and just, uh, to bring an entire state to a standstill, including the, the people that, that can't afford to be at a standstill, like EMS and public safety, it had to be huge challenges. What Did, did you have uh, any significant challenges yourself um, with, with the ice storm and, and getting to work and getting to do what you need done? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we, uh, we lost uh, all our power at, at home. Uh, we lost water. Uh, the only way we were able to warm the house is we, we have a natural gas uh, fireplace, so we were able to bypass that regulator and, and get it to light up. Uh, but then uh, with the power loss reaching 50% uh, across the grid, mm. uh, it couldn't even support uh, pumping natural gas, so we lost that. Uh, fortunately, uh, you know, over the years, I've learned to plan, and so I've got a stash of food, I've got a bunch of water, we've got all kinds of provisions that uh, we weren't worried about about uh, that sort of thing at the house, and uh, we just uh, concentrated on keeping one area warm. And uh, there's only three of us there, so uh, we did we did quite well. And uh, at one point, I had uh, one of my employees uh, who lives far on the other side of Austin, uh, in worse condition than we were, went on about uh, close to 60 hours or so without any heat at all. Uh, ran out of food and uh, and then their water pipes burst and flooded their, yeah. their condominium where they were living. So uh, I got in my POV, which is a four-wheel drive, and I made my way across Austin and uh, did a personal rescue, <laughs> brought them over to my house, and now we had six people living in, in there. Uh, and we did that for over three weeks uh, as we recovered from that process. But I think there's stories like that everywhere. Everybody was uh, doing what they could, best they could and uh, and then of course still dealing with everything at work uh, uh having the frequent uh phone call meetings that that we could have uh but then when i lost uh, that capability i was completely in the blind 
And uh, for me, that was a terrible period of time in that I knew we had an EMS system running. I know that they're going to do the very best that they can, and I can't talk to anybody. And uh, that was that was kind of a terrible feeling. Uh, it lasted a few hours and, and got back on my feet. But, um, you know, we I think we all had challenges from time to time. And uh, I think everybody just, just did a wonderful job at, at, at overcoming it the best we could. You know, Chief, you bring up a good point, and I guess from a leadership standpoint, and you know, we I've learned a lot of leadership lessons from you over the years. And uh, but you, you bring up a really good point now, where you talk about EMS is there when people need them, right? I mean, they they're the people who are running towards the danger when people are running, whatever whatever the you know the cliches are that we talk about EMS personnel as a leader, though. How do you keep your people inspired and motivated? when their houses are flooding because their pipes burst, when they don't have any food to eat, when, when they can't communicate with the outside world or get in and, and talk to their family, yet they're supposed to be on an ambulance saving other people. I mean, how, how do you inspire them? Well, you know, I, I think, Chris, that, you know, thank goodness that uh, I think EMS people are hardwired in that way. Uh, they're, they're designed within themselves to, to know that that's part of, part of the duty. And, uh, it, it makes it easier for leaders to rely on that. Um, where, where I was most concerned was fatigue. Uh, how long can we last that way? We couldn't even find food uh, to, to feed them. Fortunately, we had a, a stash of MREs that, that we have just in case. And we had to break that out and start delivering those to stations and trying to feed folks. And, um, and they, uh, most of them did have capability of communicating back to their families and and like me they they prepared and they were able to uh feel comfortable that their family was at least safe and as warm as they could be um for the duration uh but you know that that just adds to the stress it, it's tough responding at at one and a half miles an hour uh trying to go to a cardiac arrest the best way that you can and you're filled with the stress and the anxiety of that and in the back of your head is well i wonder how the kids are doing I hope they've gotten to eat and nothing's gone out and they still are warm and nothing's collapsed and they're safe. So it's a very, very stressful time. You know, Ernie, you know, uh, one of the things that, that really uh, warmed my heart after Hurricane Laura and Delta is how much the community rallied around us. And, uh, you know, we had, we had uh, providers, my colleagues lost their homes and were, were living out of hotels and going to work uh, and working extra shifts and everything post-hurricane. And I'm sure you guys had the same thing. How has Austin and, and the state of Texas um, responded to, to, to help you guys, uh, make it, make it through this tough time. Have, have you, have you had the community rally around you? Well, the, the community is very, has been very thankful. Um, and I think part of the, what's happening now is we're all in recovery mode. And, uh, and I think the other compounding thing that we had here is that we, we had a, a disaster in the middle of a disaster and, uh, we already had both in the community and within our own agency, and then I'm sure across Texas, um, we were all tired already. Uh, we were tired of putting on PPE and responding to COVID cases. Uh, we're, we're tired of the increased call volume that's occurring because of, of the pandemic. Um, we're, we're already exhausted. And then uh, we have this other disaster that comes in and freezes our world <laughs> and, and takes away all the resources that we're 
reliant upon to be able to do our job. And that just adds even, even more fatigue on top of everything. And so I really feel like what's happening at this stage is, is while everybody's being thankful and appreciative of everything that we've done, uh, the community's tired. Uh, the community is uh, somewhat shell-shocked okay. uh, from the event that just occurred. Uh, there are still people in, in Texas, in various cities in Texas, that still don't have water uh, because we, they can't buy uh, supplies to make the repairs. And uh, I think we got most of the folks with the electrical system solved already. Um, but I know that there are families out there that, that are still having to go outside or to their neighbor's house uh, to get a bucket of water so they can flush the toilet. And so uh, we're still we're still in it. It's, it's not all done yet. Yeah, that's really interesting that there's still challenges that go on. But, you know, let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit, Ernie. So we, 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 we hear the problem. You know, we, we know that the challenge is let's, let's talk about the lessons, right? So this is one of those events that you try to prepare for as best you can. But as leaders, you know, as providers, we still find ourselves in the we don't know what we don't know until it happens thing. So, you know, I'm sure that you did, uh, you know, got with your team and maybe did an after action already. But give us some of the lessons that you learned that will help other people possibly prepare in the event something like this happens uh, in their areas. Well, yeah, I think I think we approach this like we always approach uh, things that are coming towards us. Uh, we knew that it was going to be cold. We knew that there was going to be snow. We expected that there would be some ice. Uh, we felt like we had a solid infrastructure. Uh, we knew that we would have some power losses. And we also expected that we would have the, the normal and usual uh, sheltering processes uh, that, that we always have. Um, but what actually happened was a little bit different than that. Uh, there were some things that we did not expect. Um, we did not as expect getting as much ice as we got. Uh, we didn't expect to have such long periods of freezing temperatures. Um, we didn't expect as much precipitation as we got before the freezing started. Um, we didn't expect to have almost 100% uh, loss of power. And we didn't expect the loss of water and natural gas uh, throughout the community as it occurred. Um, with that, we had closures of grocery stores, gasoline stations, restaurants, uh, those, those things that we depend on so that we can feed ourselves while we're responding so that can, we can refuel and, and, and buy food and all of that. Um, we also didn't expect the, the long period of uh, sheltering and the numbers of people who are reliant on technology, for example, uh, the, the oxygen generators and things like that uh, in their homes to, to uh, get to the point that even their backup systems are, are running out and the, uh, the companies that supply them can't get to them to provide backup systems at all because they can't move, they're, they're frozen. Um, we also had quite a lot of disruption to the hospital system, uh, lots of overloading. And, uh, you know, they got to the point where they, they probably needed to divert, but it makes no sense because they're all in that situation. There's no place to divert. Um, so those are some of the things that we expected to contrasted to what actually happened. And what actually happened was a lot worse than, than we expected. Um, so we kind of started innovating at, on the fly, uh, to, uh, to begin to deal with that. So we, uh, we changed our call triage uh, system. Uh, we, we built the system several years ago for the ET3 process. 
Uh, it's called C4. It's a collaborative care uh, type of a system that we've got built up. And um, we use that to establish a, a triage line so that we could manage the many calls that were coming in through 911. And we had uh, a group of medics uh, who were answering those calls uh, in consultation with uh, a uh, PA who works with us and uh, several of our physicians. And so we were, we were, we were managing uh, cases through telehealth uh, on the fly as, as they came in. Uh, we also had our mid-level provider, the PA, that provided support for that and also even did scene responses when, when we had to. Uh, we changed our transport guidelines on the fly. Uh, we changed how we responded to priority four and five calls and, and uh, how we, uh, for priority fours, for example, we sent first responders first and then they called EMS if, if they needed us or they could use the consult line and the physician or the PA to try to solve issues without having to, to call an ambulance. Uh, priority fives were all managed by triage lines. So uh, those kinds of changes were really uh, game changers for us, and they, they helped us manage the, the volume that we were seeing and took some of the load off of the medics who were trying to get physically to, to different uh, situations. Um, we also started bringing in our personnel early. Uh, they started calling in. Many started calling in saying, I, I want to go to work, but my vehicle isn't going to get me there. Uh, so we had several of our staff who are commanders and others in uh, four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive vehicles, go out, pick them up, and bring them in to work uh, so they could uh, relieve others. And then uh, we opened up several stations until we could get hotels set up. We opened up several stations and provided housing and meals there um, so that they could be here for shift change. Um, we also uh, used a lot of our own uh, four-wheel drive vehicles to begin to pull our, our ambulances when they'd get stuck or when they slid off the road we'd go and pull them out because there wasn't anybody else to help us. So it was kind of a DIY sort of, a, of, of an approach. We even did some transports uh, using a four by four brush trucks that the fire department has uh, that are pretty heavy duty and, and could actually uh, travel. And so uh, we had to kind of change the way that we thought about everything and challenge it and, and find ways to, uh, to get around all of those things. Does that kind of answer your question a little bit or, or is there other things you need to know? I mean, I think that they, maybe just, uh, is there a longer version to that? One? <laughs> you know, it's one of the things, yeah. as, as you're talking about it, you know, and as an EMS leader myself, I'm sitting there going and I'm trying to, you know, go down this, uh, you know, decision-making tree. And I'm sure that this is where the critical thinking and the problem-solving skills come in, that where you have to be able to say, okay, we can't do this. What do we do next? And, you know, th this is kind of the always be prepared kind of thing for you never know what you're going to have to handle, but you have to be able to make these decisions. You have to be able to set direction. You've got to be as decisive as you can be. And, and sometimes the decisions you make don't work and you got to go back to the drawing board again. But I got to tell you this, exactly what you said and how you went through this process is what makes Austin Travis County EMS, one of the premier EMS services in the United States. I mean, it's not just the fact of the care that you give, but it's the leadership that you lend, the leadership team that you have, and how you go about ensuring that the most precious resource, your your folks, are taken care of. I mean, how proud are you of those folks? I'm extremely proud. Um, you know, these, these folks came to work when they had every reason not to. 
um, you know, they had their families to deal with and they had all of the things in their own homes. They had their own broken pipes. They had everything happening to them that was happening to everybody else. But here they were um, coming to work, making the calls, doing the best that they can, uh, having nothing to eat for long, long hours and no break. Uh, we're going call to call to call to call. And, um, and they're just going nonstop and they just kept on doing it. Um, and this long list of things that, uh, that I talked about and some of these things we've done before at different types of, of, uh, disaster type situations that we've had, but some of these things were brand new. We had to make them up on the fly. And what I'm most proud of is some of these things happened without me at all. Uh, like I told you, there was a period of time when I lost all communication and couldn't communicate with anyone. And these decisions were still being made. And they did them without hesitation. They did them without, well, what is, what is Chief going to say? You know, do we need to get this cleared? No. They knew that where we were, they knew the situation. They went ahead and implemented the things, and they just moved forward. And to me, um, to me, that that is where good leadership pays off. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if I had to look out at, at leaders and say, what did you learn? Uh, I, I learned personally that investing in people and giving them the confidence to make changes as needed, when needed, how they're needed uh, to do it uh, because they know it's the right thing to do. Um, that's where you need to invest your time and energy. Um, a strong leader that's got all the answers doesn't serve anybody. A strong leader who teaches other people to make decisions and gives them uh, the, the ability to do that uh, without worrying that they're going to get in trouble for it, that's good leadership. And so we had that in our organization. I don't say that towards myself. I, I have a whole team of people that leads this organization. And in fact, uh, I don't know if I've ever told you, Chris, that one of the one of my leadership mottos is called "We Lead," <laughs> and that's because uh, there's so many things that happen in an organization like ours. One leader is not enough. We have to lead all together. And and I think that's what uh, what you're seeing here. The things I'm describing. It's just some of the things that, that come to mind as I'm talking. There's a lot more things that, that we did, um, but it's because uh, people assumed the, the uh, responsibility of being leaders in their place, doing what they were doing when they were doing it. And so I'm extremely, extremely proud of the, the medical staff, the medics that, that came to work, that did all the calls, all our commanders, supervisors, everybody who just put their heads together and said, hey, let's figure this out. Let's do what we can do. What do we have left? How do we use that? And that's what they came up with. Yeah. You know, the, the entire time you've been talking and, and both of you stealing my thunder, because uh, <laughs> I was going to, <laughs> I was going to mention the exact same things you talk about. I'm used to, to Chris stealing my ideas, uh, but I've been nodding vigorously uh, throughout this entire thing. And, and it, it strikes me that, that uh, really premier well-run EMS systems are exactly what you described. They're operationally agile, and when when faced with challenges, they can act decisively and shift on the fly and, and change. And you know, uh, looked at without that perspective, you you think that's kind of fly by the seat of your pants and ad hoc and it's disorganized. But but it's it's the exact opposite of that. Um, you have to have a really strong. Uh, leadership component and and a really healthy organizational culture uh, to be able to do that. 
and and the fact that that your uh, your employees and and your subordinates are empowered to make those decisions uh, and feel comfortable doing so in the absence of of any direction from you really speaks well to to how uh, uh, what a what a good system Austin Travis County is. Um, so, Ernie, what kind of uh, what kind of challenges are your are your crews still facing? I, one of the things I've always admired about you guys is you, you've kind of been innovators on uh, on uh, many of the things that that uh, um, many of the issues in EMS, like fatigue issues in EMS, and 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 innovative shifts and schedules and stuff to kind of combat that. How are your crews holding up now, and what have you what have you had to keep in place uh, to to keep them healthy and and keep them going? Well, I think the uh, the thing that that uh, was a lesson for me is is that uh, I tried to stay out of the way as much as possible during the event, and I work in the background and uh, making lots of phone calls and talking to lots of other uh, of persons that that work with me. And uh, one of the feedbacks I got from my my staff, they would have liked to have heard more from me during the event, although they were hearing everything that we were talking about from all the different sources uh, they would have liked to have heard from me. So one of the things that we're doing in the aftermath is I've stepped up the communication and I'm talking a little bit more about what we're doing and how we're doing it and how we're recovering and, uh, and all of that. Um, we pretty much have gotten back to a normal state of, of operations at this stage. Um, and, uh, and I think the biggest uh, experience the thing we're experiencing right now is the, the fatigue, uh, the feeling tired, um, the, uh, the grumpiness that comes from, you know, we just got our, you know, what's handed to us, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and we're in the process of healing from that. Um, so some of the things that, that we've got planned uh, starting in, in April, we have a, a wellness center that we have some psychologists and, and they're going to start doing some talk sessions. Uh, so that we can begin to offload some of the feelings that we're having, some of the frustrations that we're having, uh, some of the some of the uh, the fear that might be left behind when you realize, wow, everything we depend on can be destroyed, and everything that we need to get our jobs done can be uh, disabled. And so, uh, when you experience that, that gives you this extreme feeling of, of helplessness. And so, uh, we have to deal with that. And I think that's probably going to be one of the biggest challenges uh, that we face, not, not just us and just because of this storm, uh, but because of, of COVID and the national things that are happening and all the challenges across the, the U.S. Um, I think we're going to go through a, a realignment of our temperaments and uh, leaders need to be on top of that. Uh, we need to be willing to, to stop and, and just uh, listen and uh, allow people to have time uh, to speak their hearts and um, and give them the opportunities and safe zones uh, to be able to do that um, and, and do it without fear that there's going to be repercussions because of something they say. Uh, so creating those safe zones is, is key. And uh, right now, that's kind of the phase that we're at. Uh, we haven't finished our after action yet because we've got uh, we've got the whole city that, that's doing that with all the different departments and our Office of Emergency Management is heading that up. Uh, but we certainly have some lessons that we've learned and we've, we've got a list of things that we, that we want to change and do differently going forward. Um, so that has yet to start. Um, but, but sitting back and talking about that, uh, and talking and listening to, to our folks when they do get to talk about it is therapeutic. 
And that's, uh, I think that's the stage we're at. We're going through the therapeutic process of recovery. Well, excellent thoughts, Ernie. And we appreciate you sharing them with us and, and sharing with our listeners uh, the lessons drawn from a, a, a very trying time. I'd like to reach out to our listeners and ask, are you enjoying the show? Please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and contact the Inside EMS team at the show at ems1.com to share ideas, suggestions, and feedback, or if you'd like to join us at a guest. And you've heard what we think, what Chris and I think, what Ernie thinks, but we'd like to hear what you think. Until then, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>